Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans and hosting with me once again is Virginia Allen. Welcome, Virginia. Lauren, it is always so good to be here with you. Always great to have you. Up on today's show, the only Chick-fil-A in England lost their lease due to protests from gay rights activists. NBC's Law & Order SVU trashes pro-lifers. Kanye West told wife Kim Kardashian he thinks she's dressing too sexy. And Heritage Foundation's education fellow Lindsay Burke discusses her new book on what is broken in the education system and more importantly, what can be done to fix it. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting our show by leaving a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It makes such a big difference. All right, all my fellow Chick-fil-A lovers out there, you will be glad to hear that you can now buy your favorite chicken sandwich across the pond in Reading, England. The sad news, it will only be for the next six months. Chick-fil-A opened their doors in England on October 10th and served several hundred very happy customers. However, the LGBTQ Reading Pride Group was not at all happy about Chick-fil-A coming to town. In an event called Get the Chick Out, the LGBTQ group gathered to protest the restaurant. The CEO of Reading Pride said, We are a progressive country and certainly a very progressive town. What we have here is a restaurant owned by a family that has very backwards beliefs that actively promote anti-LGBTQ charities. To have a company with such values in our town is abhorrent to us. The controversy between Chick-fil-A and the LGBTQ community goes all the way back to 2012 when CEO Dan Cathy said in an interview on the Ken Coleman show, I think we are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to define what marriage is about. Chick-fil-A responded to the current situation in England with a statement saying, We hope our guests in the UK will see that Chick-fil-A is a company focused on serving great food and hospitality and does not have a social or political agenda. We are represented by more than 145,000 people from different backgrounds and beliefs, and we welcome everyone. But unfortunately, after the protests and just eight days after its opening, the shopping mall where the restaurant is located yanked its future lease, saying, We always look to introduce new concepts for our customers. However, we have decided on this occasion that the right thing to do is only allow Chick-fil-A to trade with us for the initial six-month pilot period and not extend any further. Quite a sad day for England, if you ask me. So, Lauren, do you think that the politics of the town should influence the mall's leasing decision to Chick-fil-A? So I think this is a difficult question, Virginia. I do think there are times where people in transactions should make decisions on whether or not to lease to folks. Let's say that there's a company that will not serve people of a certain race or a company that people will not serve people of certain sexual orientation. But in this case, Chick-fil-A does not discriminate against homosexual people. Chick-fil-A is a delicious chicken restaurant with great service. And yeah, its founder has traditional marriage beliefs, but that does not have a major effect on the company. So I think, yes, that in terms of a free market, people should be able to make decisions on who they're doing business with. But I think this is a really poor decision because Chick-fil-A is amazing. And this mall is now (laughs) taking away Chick-fil-A from people from England, and especially not just the chicken, the Chick-fil-A sauce. (laughs) (laughs) It's all just so good. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, in a free market society, if a shopping center owner realizes, okay, having this store or restaurant present ultimately is going to hurt business or just be too controversial, they have the right to, you know, say, okay, we're not going to renew the lease, the contract, whatever. But really, at the end of the day, what you have is you have a group of people in England, the pride group, that's saying because 
your CEO has a different belief set than we do, we can't even tolerate you being present in our town. And I mean, my goodness, that's just sad. <laughs> and it's eight days. How do you know how this is going to affect your business in just eight days? Yeah, they, they didn't even give them a chance. Right from the beginning, they already knew, they'd already made up their mind that they didn't want Chick-fil-A there. So, you know, we, we've seen similar situations here in the States with LGBT groups protesting Chick-fil-A. Do you think that Chick-fil-A is at any risk in America maybe of having stores close because of protests? I don't think there's a major risk. I think maybe in some very liberal districts in, I'm just going to say California, but, you know, more blue states. But I think in general, most Americans are like, it's delicious. Everybody treats me really nicely when I go there. And we won't necessarily see this with Chick-fil-A's in America. Yeah, I remember seeing an interview uh, with a couple of very liberal people talking about Chick-fil-A and saying, oh, we really don't like their politics, but man, their chicken is good. <laughs> and yes, it really is good. Well, and I think the scary part is if any of our listeners have ever heard about the Overton window, right? And that is kind of what's acceptable in American politics. And in England, we see it's moving so far leftward that traditional views that have been believed in for hundreds and thousands of years are now outside of what's acceptable. And I think it was a great question to ask if this could be a problem in America, because it's kind of previewing what's happening here, that Overton window is shifting to the left. And so why it might not be a immediate threat to Chick-fil-A, I think it's a threat to Americans with traditional religious beliefs. And we see their businesses, we Baronel Stutzman, Jack Phillips, I mean, the Harris funeral home case. We hear this every week, a, a new story. So it is definitely something that's worth talking about. And as much as it's kind of fun, you can have fun about it and talk about Chick-fil-A, it's really serious. It is. Yeah, no, you're right. It really comes down to where that line between kind of the separation of church and state and, you know, what is the intent of that? Is that to keep the church out of the state or the state out of the church? I know it's such a like bumper sticker slogan, and usually I'm not a, f a fan of those, but it, it's freedom of religion, not mm -hmm. freedom from religion. Yeah. And, and we should be called to be able to interact with one another, even when we don't agree. Opponents of this want it to seem like they're discriminating and they're this terrible company, but no, they just have Christian beliefs. And it should be okay that as long as you're willing to serve all of your customers with a smile on your face and the same service that you give to everyone else, I don't see why this should be an issue at all. Yeah, it goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago with Ellen DeGeneres, who sat next to President Bush at a sporting event and was very open about, okay, we don't have the same political beliefs, but that's okay. We can still be civil. We can still laugh together. We can still be friends and we don't have to agree on everything in order to have a relationship. Such a great point, Virginia. All right. For our next topic, we're going to talk about SVU taking a stance on the abortion debate in an episode on October 17th called The Burdens of Our Choices. Unfortunately, their message is that abortion is, quote, old white men trying to control women women's bodies. The show follows the investigation of Evangeline, a 13-year-old girl from Ohio that was raped repeatedly by her stepfather. When she becomes pregnant, she runs away to New York to have an abortion because of Ohio's fetal heartbeat law, which requires a family member's permission to abort if the girl is under the age of 21. Side note, in real life, this law was blocked. Evangeline's mother is portrayed as a fanatic evangelical Christian that refuses to let her daughter abort the baby or believe that the stepfather is the rapist. A lawsuit ensues and the police department takes the pro-choice stance. Here's a clip from the show. Just to run out the clock. Sorry, what century is this? All these old white men trying to control women's bodies? I mean, how far off are we from The Handmaid's Tale? You grew up taking these rights for granted. My mother, there was a time when she considered abortion and her only option was, was back alley. The bottom line is, if you have enough money, there's always a way. But it's these poor women, these girls. In some states, they're going to see deaths. That's where this is going. They think that's what we're going back to. Fundamentalist Catholics, they see abortion as deaths. You're Catholic, right? Is that what you think? What I think is what I think. But if a woman is the victim of rape or incest... I hear that, and it sounds like you're saying that a woman has to be a victim in order to have control over her own body. That's not what he's saying. Good. Because it's not a decision that should ever be made by a group of men or a prosecutor who's never had to make that choice. So the episode does end with Evangeline going to a clinic to abort the baby. Virginia, you watched this whole episode. To what extent did they show each side of the abortion argument? And how did they frame abortion to the audience? So they really didn't show each side well. There was some very interesting nods 
to the pro-life movement uh, <laughs> that honestly wound up giving way more credit and like, creed to the pro-choice side. So uh, essentially you had the pro-lifers largely being represented by very fanatical, the people that are a very small percentage of the pro-life movement that I don't agree with the way that they choose to be pro-life, which is kind of by yelling at women, telling them they're murderers who choose to have abortions, holding up signs, that say not very nice things. So that was really the side that was shown and the side that was seen as loving and caring and really being concerned for this young girl and the struggle that she was going through. Well, those were the pro-choicers. The spin essentially that they took was there are 100% are situations where abortion is very justified, but they approached it in this stance of a woman never wants to have an abortion. It's only one, you know, it's her only option. And one of the detectives on the show, one point he's speaking with this very kind of wild, outrageous lawyer who is fanatically pro-life and loud and inconsiderate. And he's telling him, you know, I understand that that you're pro-life, but there are situations that it's very much justified to abort or needed. And he tells this, you know, I think there's like some music playing in the background and he tells this kind of heart, heartbreaking family story of his mom had an abortion um, this is the the police officer talking. He says, my mom had an abortion after she'd already had four kids. And the doctor told her that the baby was going to die after it was born. Uh, and it was a, you know, a risk to her health to go through with the pregnancy. And so she decided to abort in order to be able to raise her other children. But, you know, she cried for days and days after. And so it was sort of showing like, yeah, I'm pro-choice, but I'm pro-choice only in these, you know, really, really hard situations. And it just left you walking away with the impression of, man, you have to be a heartless person to be pro-life 100% of the time, which just shows the power of media. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, I've talked about on the show how in high school I was the treasurer of my Young Democrats Club, and then when I was a freshman in college, I was pro-choice. And exactly what you were saying, I had this image in my head of pro-lifers being angry, yelling, don't really care about women, kind of fanatics. But since I've become pro-life, I've, I've realized that that is so far from the truth and that the pro-life movement is really the people who care about women and who want to really just embrace all, all life and the dignity of life. And with Hollywood, there's so much money and there's so much production value. How do you think this show and these scenes really affect the viewers and what they think of abortion? Well, I... I finished watching the episode and honestly, I walked away like, wow, if I didn't know truly why I'm pro-life, I would finish that episode and think, well, I guess maybe I am pro-choice. Because as I said, it really does frame it like, gosh, you have to be some sort of monster to be truly pro-life. So yeah, media plays a huge role. It plays on our emotions. I mean, Hollywood is, they're good at what they do. They're good at making good shows and getting powerful messages across. And often those messages, like in this episode, are very, very political. So you really have to find out, okay, wait, why? Why do I believe the way I believe? And I mean, for me personally, I hold to the belief both from a biblical perspective, but also from a science perspective, that life does begin at conception. And so if you hold that truth in mind, and if that's truly what you believe, then there's no way I can be pro-choice. But if I didn't have that conviction, then yeah, after that episode, I think I would be rejoiced. <laughs> All right, Virginia, I want to give you the opportunity right here on Problematic Women to respond to the idea that abortion is, quote, old white men trying to control women's bodies. Yeah, and that, oh goodness, it's so not true. <laughs> so of course, yes, there are old white men who are, are pro-life and they are very much entitled uh, to speak out and be very open and honest about that belief. But the loudest and most powerful voices within the pro-life movement are amazing women. Women like Abby Johnson, who worked at a Planned Parenthood, or you know Penny Nance, who worked so closely with women and around women's issues, and our own Kay Coles-James at the Heritage Foundation, who also worked in the pro-life movement for a very long time. And these are women from very, very different backgrounds, all ages. And that is truly representative of 
the pro-life movement. If you go to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., you will see so many young people and so many young women of all different races and backgrounds that are standing up for life. And this 100% is a women's issue. But even more than that, it's a life issue. And pro-lifers, they are not just concerned about the life of the baby, they're concerned about the life of the mother just as much and the life of the father if he's involved. There's three lives involved with any pregnancy. And so, yeah, for... (laughs) For, for pro-choicers just to complain that it's, you know, it's just white men that want to control women's bodies, it's just simply not accurate. So, Virginia, I struggle with this a lot where I love TV, but more and more we're seeing kind of these leftist messages appear. What's your response to somebody who likes SVU and wants to keep watching it, but there's messages like this in it? I would say just know what you believe. If, if you're going into these shows and you're looking to gain your own sort of beliefs, philosophy on an issue from the TV show, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) If you, by all means, like do your research, find out what you believe on issues like abortion, look at both sides, look at the science on both sides, hear the arguments, but don't turn to TV for that. So then once you kind of have those beliefs and you're firm in them, enjoy the TV show. I I think, you know, you can kind of learn to set those things aside. But also, I know everyone has their own convictions. And for some people, they might say, well, I don't want to take part in that because that's advocating for something I don't believe in. And that's fine. But don't judge your friends who are enjoying SVU. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, I just want to plug probably one of my favorite podcasts. And that's the Daily Signal podcast. Because you know what? It's so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. And I'm just always looking for a way to keep up with news that matters. And the Daily Signal, the Daily Signal podcast does just that. Hosted by some of my amazing colleagues, such as Virginia, Daniel Davis, Katrina Trinko, Rob Bluey. It brings you the news that you want to hear in a way that's just really easily to digest. If you're interested in finding it, it is on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. Look it up, Daily Signal News. All right, welcome back. I am very excited for this next segment. We're going to talk a little about Kim and Kanye, two of our favorite celebs to talk about on this show. And they had a little bit of a disagreement last week over Kim's clothing choices. Kim Kardashian West appeared at the Met Gala in a dress that took eight months to create. The dress was a tight corset in a nude color that was designed to look like she had just emerged from the water, dripping wet. And it actually did. From a design perspective, it was pretty incredible. But her husband, Kanye, however, did not want the dress to make an appearance. The night before the gala, he shared his new thoughts on her style. I just feel like I've just went through this transition where from being a rapper, like looking at all these girls and looking at my wife, like, oh, my girl needs to be just like the other girls, showing her body off, showing this, showing that. And I didn't realize that that was affecting like my soul and my spirit as someone that's married and loved and the father of like now with about to be four kids. And then Kim responded. You built me up to have, be this like sexy person and confidence and all this stuff. Yes. And just because you're on a journey and you're on your transformation doesn't mean that I'm in the right, I'm in the same spot with you. All right, cool, was Kanye's response as he got up and left the room. So Kim has talked a lot about how Kanye has picked out her outfits over the years and how he's talked and sung a lot about her sexiness. So to some listeners, it might kind of seem like a surprise that all of a sudden he is kind of changing his mind on that and doesn't want Kim to go out scantily clad. But I think probably the motivating decision behind this was Kanye's recent conversion to Christianity. So, Virginia, what is your thoughts on this change and uh, how he wants her to dress? When you listen to what Kanye said, it's actually really sincere. He's, I think he's starting to realize, like, wait, the way that my wife dresses and the way that women dress does af- affect men. And it actually kind of uh, creates maybe a, a bit of a, a barrier in your heart or your mind that makes it sometimes more difficult to connect with the Lord. So I feel like, you know, <laughs> we, we're kind of we're looking at Kanye West in this season and we're asking, you know, was this faith conversion real? And with stuff like this, you kind of have to say, okay, it kind of seems like it was that he's starting to kind of figure out what does it look like to live as a Christian? Not that living as a Christian looks like you walk around in sackcloth and you wear ugly clothes, 
But maybe it does mean that you consider how do I dress myself and am I dressing myself in a way that honors the people around me, that's honoring to myself. So (laughs) it's maybe a little messy and Kanye's timing might not have been awesome since the Met Gala was literally the next day and this dress had been being prepared for eight months. So not too ideal to all of a sudden say, hey, I I think maybe you should wear something different. You kind of have to laugh a little bit about the humor of just uh, the banter between spouses, because honestly, that sounds like a conversation that could happen between any couple. But yeah, it's definitely interesting that I think it's a little bit of fruit from Kanye of his Christian beliefs. And I love keeping up with the Kardashians. I've always loved them. I think most of the time, it's a good example of a family on TV. They do make a lot of mistakes and definitely not endorsing everything that they've done. I mean, the way that Kim rose to stardom was a little questionable, but I do think it's great that Kim and Kanye are having this discussion on TV. But I know a lot of critics will say, oh my gosh, this is a husband telling his wife what to do. Virginia, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's appropriate for a husband to question what his wife is wearing? You know, I think in a relationship, it's 100% a partnership. And if it's a healthy marriage, there's going to be freedom to have those conversations. And of course, with anything like this, the way that the husband broaches the topic, he needs to be sensitive and considerate of his wife. But a wife should also let him share his thoughts and listen. I mean, it's like it's like any relationship. There needs to be a, a free exchange of thoughts and ideas and talking through things. So no, I, I don't think Kanye was like way out of line to say, hey, maybe that's not super appropriate. Like I said, his timing was way off. That's just like, come on, man. <laughs> you you know better. <laughs> don't bring this up at the last minute. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a discussion that's totally okay to have and that spouses should be able to talk about that. And what do you think of Kanye's sentiment of, you know, what you wear affects me? I think it's so important that he raised that because a lot of women don't actually realize that what they wear and how they present their bodies is powerful. And yeah, we we do have to think about, you know, am I honoring myself with what I'm wearing? Am I just kind of making myself an object through my clothing through for guys to look at? Or am I am I making myself more than that? So yeah, it's it's important to ask yourself. It's important to talk about. And I'm I'm really glad that that Kanye honestly brought it up. And it's it's an important conversation to have in the public sphere. So Virginia, Kim Kardashian's fame really did come because of her body. I think the peach emoji is really associated with her. So if she was to change what she wore and how she presented her body, how do you think that would affect her career? I think it would be incredibly powerful because if you have someone that became famous for dressing very kind of evocatively then to shift that people would notice first off it would speak you know i think your actions speak a lot louder than your words and people would wonder hey why are you dressing more appropriately and that would kind of give her the chance to speak to young women and to talk about how important it is uh, to dress in a way that honors yourself, that honors the people around you. She can still look fantastic. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman, but you don't have to look crazy, crazy sexy to be beautiful. You know, she can just wear tops that are a little higher and dresses that go a little longer uh, and still be this amazing fashion icon, but in a way that actually encourages and inspires women to be beautiful and not just sexy. So the Met Gala happened, I think, about six months ago, back in April or May. And Kanye's conversion happened around the same time. And I, like I mentioned, I love keeping up with the Kardashians. I did not keep up for the past couple of seasons, but I'm really excited to start watching. And I, I watched this whole episode for, in preparing for the show. And it was kind of like seeing old friends. So <laughs> I'm just really excited to see Kanye go through this conversion and have these conversations with Kim and the rest of the Kardashian family on a national scale. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting over, you know, the next few months to kind of see how this does continue to play out and maybe how their platform within Hollywood shifts and changes a little. You know, I was talking to a group of friends about this just a couple weeks ago and they were saying, you know, it's really important just to be careful that we're not necessarily looking (laughs) to Kanye West to be like our spiritual Mm -hmm. pastor, essentially. He's a baby Christian. And if this encounter with the Lord is authentic, that's awesome. And let's be praying for him and championing him in that, but also just being careful that we wouldn't go to a baby Christian for 
wisdom and life advice. That's a great point, Virginia. All right, but before we wrap the segment, I know Problematic Women is probably your number one source for Kanye West news, so I just want to hit a couple other headlines. This week it is Kim Kardashian's birthday, and Kanye donated $1 million to her favorite prison reform charities for her birthday, which I thought was really kind. On Friday, Jesus is King is going to be dropping. Supposedly, he's pushed back this album a couple of times, but I'm very hopeful. And next week, if it drops, we'll have a full review for you to listen to. So be sure to listen next week because Lauren is going to bring us all the details. All the details. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we are going to have Heritage Foundation policy expert Lindsay Burke with us. She is going to talk a little bit about her new book, The Not-So-Great Society, And we are here with her at the Heritage Foundation President's Club meeting in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We are here at the Heritage Foundation's President's Club, where we are joined by Heritage Foundation Education Research Fellow, Lindsay Burke. And she has just released a new book, The Not-So-Great Society. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. All right, Lindsay, let's jump right in. So I want to start with the title of the book. It's pretty unique, The Not-So-Great Society. And in that title, you're referring back to President Lyndon B. Johnson, who in the 1960s launched a set of domestic programs that were intended to better society. And there was a large focus uh, on the education system. But can you tell us a little bit more about what President Johnson's Great Society was really intended to do, and what was that effect that it had on public education? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to frame it. What was it intended to do, and what were the actual outcomes? I'm reminded of the quote that Milton Friedman said about intentions, right? He said, one of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than by their results. And I think we have to put the Great Society, all of the programs that it initiated, in that bucket, that while there were intentions on the part of President Johnson, and we can debate what those intentions might have been, uh, the outcomes have been lackluster, to put it mildly. The Great Society, when it kicked off in 1965, Johnson said that the war on poverty, one-third of it, would be fought in the classrooms of America. And what that did was it set the stage for a federal preschool program known as Head Start that still exists today, a K-12 system of of programs in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which everybody might know better, it eventually became known as No Child Left Behind, and then the Higher Education Act, which got the federal government into the game of underwriting student loans for uh, students across the country. And the outcomes of those programs have really been subpar, to say the least. And in the case of higher ed in particular, really produced, I would argue, the exact opposite outcome of the intentions that were laid out in 1965. So when did this start going wrong? Was the program kind of a failure from the start? Is it, are we just now seeing these negative consequences? Yeah, so it really was a failure from the start. Now we have about a half century to really evaluate exactly what those failures were and how bad they were. Uh, so that's, I think, one of the unique contributions of this book is to sort of take that long view and look at all of the various outcomes. But I would argue it really started from the moment that we got the federal government so intrinsically involved in education policy, which we did in 65. So if you look back to the early days of the republic, there was really no federal involvement whatsoever in education. We actually got a really uh, a small department of education that popped up in 1867, but it was downgraded a year later to a small little office of education that gathers statistics. And then if you fast forward a little bit, in 1944, we get the GI Bill. And so the GI Bill, which we all know that supported returning service members who wanted to go to college, but the GI Bill was really uh, one of the first sort of significant pieces of the federal government getting involved. But that was it. From the beginning of the Republic to the GI Bill, had very, very modest federal involvement. The National School Lunch Program pops up, but it's, it's modest. And then all of a sudden something changes in 1957. We see the Soviets launch Sputnik, and this is, of course, the first Earth-orbiting satellite. And then a month later, in November of 57, they launch Sputnik 2. And at that point, President Eisenhower at the time says, okay, we've got to leverage the federal government to provide some additional federal spending to support scientists and mathematicians. But at that point, it was really a national security prerogative, so it was appropriate for the federal government to spend some money. But what the Great Society did 
was it turned that on its head. And so you get Lyndon Johnson, who comes in as president in 1964 in his first State of the Union address. He announces an all-out war on poverty in America. And that was really the catalyst for this huge Great Society push that, that he eventually laid out and got signed into law that affected everything from grade school to grad school. And so we can talk a little bit about the outcomes of those programs specifically, but they have been poor, to say the least, when it comes to preschool. They have not moved the needle at all in terms of K-12 policy, and they have led to massive increases in college costs at the higher education level. And before these federal education programs were created, it wasn't like this is when public education started. Just before then, it was left right. up to the states, correct? That's right. And localities, even even better, right? So most education policy, and, and still today, it's a really good question because for the most part, education is a state and local issue. And even in the wake of all of the federal intervention that Johnson catalyzed, today the federal government is still just an 8.5% stakeholder on all K-12 education spending. So education is a quintessentially state and local issue. Um, it's about a 45-45 split, if we want to get really technical, in the, the revenue at the state and local level. But it is something that um, is supposed to be locally driven. It's supposed to be close to families. Programs in education are supposed to be situated closest to the people that they impact, which is why it was so ill-advised from the very beginning to get to your earlier point about having the federal government enter that domain. The federal government is the farthest (laughs) it can possibly be from the students and families and individuals these programs impact. So let's wait a minute to talk about the effect that it's had on colleges, but let's start with elementary and high school. What is kind of that before and after of, you know, what did we have before that was so good and what have we lost uh, within elementary and high school with the implementation of the Great Society? Yeah, so that's a great question. So at the K-12 level, the elementary and and high school level, uh, we have seen completely flat academic outcomes since the program began in 65. So if you go back to 1965, and we have a chapter in our book, The Not-So-Great Society, from Harvard's Paul Peterson, and in, that, uh, in his chapter, he talks about how in 1965, students who were low income and students who were upper income from upper income families, that there was a four year, a four grade level difference in learning between those students. So poor students and upper income students, four grade levels difference in learning in 1965. Today, that difference is four grade levels worth of learning. So we have not moved the needle whatsoever in terms of narrowing that achievement gap between poor children and their more affluent peers. We have not moved the needle in terms of graduation rates for disadvantaged children. We are still in the middle of the pack internationally, so we're not competitive internationally when we look at other countries around the world. And so the needle has essentially been flat. If you look at metrics, take, for instance, reading achievement among high school seniors. Reading achievement is the same today as it was when those Great Society programs passed. So on every metric that you can look at, we have not seen the needle move whatsoever in elementary and secondary education. And and I should add, we have seen per-pupil federal education dollars quadruple in real terms since the Great Society launched. So a fourfold inflation-adjusted increase in spending, and we have bought with that a 137% increase in non-teaching staff. So that's basically what we got. We got no improvement in terms of academic outcomes, but we got a public education system that saw significant non-teaching administrative bloat in the wake of the Great Society. And Lindsay, I know you're not an economist, but where does that money come from? (laughs) Right. I am not an economist, but I can tell you that it comes from you and me. (laughs) So, I mean, it is taxpayer supported. And, you know, that's a really interesting segue, I think, into the higher ed component and the impact of the Great Society, because... Prior to the Great Society initiative in 65, most students paid their way to go to college, and college was relatively affordable. Um, What we got, though, when we had massive federal subsidization after the Great Society launched, so this was the Higher Education Act, gets signed into law in 65, and for the first time, it puts the full faith and credit of Uncle Sam behind private student loans. So a massive increase in federal um, subsidies for higher ed, So what that did was that laid the groundwork for where we are today, which is a federal government 
that originates and services and directly provides 90% of all student loans across the country. And what that means, not only has it made college less affordable, right, to quote Richard Vedder, who's an economist at the (laughs) University of Ohio, who also has a chapter in our book, they're basically, the federal government has been dumping money out of airplanes onto universities. And so, of course, that enables them to spend profligately, to create climbing walls and lazy rivers and tiger grottos, to not be remotely fiscally responsible with their money because they know that they can pass that tab on to students who get easy access to federal student loans with virtually no credit check. And then if they default or if there's loan forgiveness, because the federal government subsidizes 90% of all student loans, that bill is paid by taxpayers when students default. And so we're in a a really tenuous situation in higher education financing. We have $1.6 trillion in outstanding student loan debt today in America. I mean, that is breathtaking. It's not going away anytime soon. And the policies that exist today because of the Great Society programs are what have led to that situation being the case. So we really saw the exact opposite effect yes. of what it was supposed to do, <laughs> exactly. right? Interesting. Exactly. And, and I should say on that, too, I mean, the whole Great Society initiative, a big part, right, is the war on poverty. It was to ostensibly help lower-income individuals climb the ladder of economic mobility It failed in the K-12 realm, as we talked about. And in higher education, Richard Vetter in our book talks about a slightly lower proportion of low-income students today attend college than they did in 1965. So it's failed on every measure to try to improve outcomes for low-income Americans. So where would you begin to try and fix all of this? (laughs) I mean, it's such a, a massive issue, and maybe it's two very separate answers from, you know, what would fix elementary and high school versus college. Yeah. But what, what would you say to that? Well, I think the overarching answer is the same. And we, we say this in our book, that the first step is a bold one, and it is to get the federal government out of these programs from preschool through grad school. Uh, and so that it, it is a sort of technical fix in a way because the federal government is intrinsically involved in, in all education policy today. And that includes having programs over at the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is where Head Start is located. Of course, the Federal Department of Education. There are programs over at DOD. I mean, education programs are everywhere in the federal government. But what we should start thinking about is how we wind down the Department of Education as a cabinet-level agency. And for those programs that are constitutional, are performing well, where do we house those programs? You know, do we think about maybe Treasury can manage student loans, for instance? Do we think about putting some of the statistics um, reviews that the federal government currently does at the Department of Ed over at the Census Bureau? So there are ways to think about how we technically wind down the department as a cabinet-level agency. Remember, the Department of Education has only been around since 1980, right? Like, it hasn't been around forever. Uh, and so that what that does is you sort of rebalance power over education, and you start to pull that power back down to the state and local level and ultimately family level where it belongs. Because that, at the end of the day, the heart of the problem with the Great Society is that it created this fundamental misalignment of power and incentives, and it really shifted the locus of power of control to the federal government and out of the hands of localities and states and ultimately families. And so winding down federal intervention means putting it back in the hands of state and local leaders and ultimately parents. And I'm glad you said that, Lindsay, because that gets into my next question is with that vacuum, as government takes up more space and leaves less space for parents That's to be right. involved, how does that actually affect an individual student? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. And, and this is One of the thrusts of our book is to say, you know, we've had half a century to look at the great society and see that it has been the not-so-great society and has failed, and we need to uh, basically rebalance to states, localities, and families and civil society at the end of the day. When you empower civil society, that means local community options, not federal government options. You ultimately empower families because they have access to options that are situated closest to them. So it means making space for things like education choice programs to flourish at the state and local level. At the higher education level, it means 
getting Uncle Sam out of the student loan business so that private providers can enter the market again. We used to have a thriving private student loan market. But even better, it allows innovative options like income share agreements, for instance, to bubble up from the surface. If you look at a place like Purdue University, they're a really great example. So Purdue is offering income share agreements to some of its students. And basically, that enables the student to pay nothing up front for college. And Purdue, as a result of offsetting that cost up front, knows exactly how much that student is likely to earn if they enter engineering versus another field. They can set their interest rates accordingly. And then once the student has a job, Purdue receives a portion of their income on the back end. So these are innovative options that are not debt-based in the way that we've traditionally thought about them, and they certainly get taxpayers off the hook for financing student loans. And so when we move the federal government out, we make space for civil society options like that to reemerge. I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the awesome women that we've celebrated on this podcast is Virginia Walden Ford. And you know her, and she played such a critical role in D.C. in providing a program where students could take kind of yeah. that, that little bit of money and actually apply it to going right. to a private school or a charter school. So are, are we seeing more and more of those programs emerge? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because if we think about the Great Society, it was 1965. A few years prior to that, in 1955, we had something else come out, and that was the essay written by Milton Friedman for the first time in which he formalized the idea basically of a school voucher. And it was in that 1955 essay that he said, let's separate the financing of education from the delivery of services. And so I like to think about the fact that we basically had two competing ideas moving forward, sort of in tandem, right? Milton Friedman's idea of freedom in education, and then the top-down, heavy-handed, great society failure that we've seen. But ultimately, Milton Friedman's idea is winning out. And it, honestly, it had remained an academic idea until about 1990. We didn't see a lot of school choice before 1990. But then all of a sudden, we get the first program, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in 91. We get a school voucher program. And then throughout the 90s, we see a couple of other programs. Today, we have 63 private school choice programs in 29 states in D.C. And Virginia, Walden Ford, is really, we call her the mother of the D.C. voucher program, but it was because of her that that program began uh, in Washington, D.C. in 2003. And it is not hyperbolic to say that it has saved the lives, and Virginia herself (laughs) saved the lives of thousands of D.C. children as a result. They have been able to escape failing and unsafe and unsatisfactory public schools in Washington, D.C., and attend a private school of choice where they're safe and they're learning and their parents are happy and they're satisfied. And that is all because they're able to select into a school where the learning options reflect their values and their hopes and their aspirations for their lives long term. And, you know, that's sort of the the student level story of it. And when we look at the data, and we heard we're here at President's Club, we heard yesterday from Dr. Patrick Wolf, who's at the University of Arkansas, He walked us through the research, but when we look at the research, it is overwhelmingly positive on the benefits of school choice. I mean, we see, we can be technical, there are 16 randomized control trial evaluations that look at the impact of school choice on academic achievement, and 10 of those find statistically significant improvements for students. We have four that have null effects, so no difference between public and private uh, school choice options, and then two that have negative effects, but those two We're both from Louisiana, which is a uniquely heavily regulated state. I say all that to say the impact of school choice, the literature shows it is positive on balance that kids are performing phenomenally as a result. And that's all because we're putting power in the hands of parents and, quite frankly, putting some much-needed competitive pressure on the public school systems to improve and to be responsive to families. Lindsay, a lot of our listeners are probably not quite parent age, but what is someone who's, you know, 18, 19, 20, 25, what should they be thinking about school choice? Yeah. Yeah. So if, and um, not being that much older now, (laughs) um, but I, you know, I think all the time about how our education system, just the way it operates is anathema to every other aspect of American life, right? 
everything we do every day. Like before we started this podcast a few minutes ago, somebody said, should I pull up the Starbucks app to put in my order, right? We expect customization with everything. I got here in an Uber this morning that picked me up from my house and brought me here where I needed to be, you know, in a very quick order. Uh, you know, we do everything on demand from what we watch on TV to what we order, right? We have Uber Eats, we have scooters, we have Lime, you know. I mean, everything is just totally, totally customized except for our education system. We assign students based on their parents' zip code, which means low-income families are the ones who have the least power in that system. But we assign students based on their zip code to whatever government-run school happens to be closest to where their parents can afford to live. I mean, that, what else do we do that operates that way? The post office, maybe? The DMV? That's about it. So we have this system in education that looks more like a monopoly than a market, much more like a monopoly than any sort of customized option everybody under 25 would demand in any other sector. And so I think, I think eventually, honestly, it's going to work itself out because the, uh, I think the under 25 crowd is so used to that customization that once they get to the point where they are having kids of their own and have to navigate that school system, they will be completely dumbfounded by the fact that they cannot customize it the way they customize everything else. So the book is called The Not-So-Great Society. Yes. Lindsay, where can it be found? So you can go to heritage.org uh, backslash great society, and you can request a copy there, and it will be delivered to your door, customized and on demand. <laughs> wow, that's so great, <laughs> so convenient. Hey, Lindsay, would you mind staying on for our next segment? I'd be happy to. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. All right. Well, welcome back. Lindsay, we wanted to keep you on because of all your hard work and this just amazing new book and just everything you do from the Heritage Foundation. We wanted to crown you Problematic Woman of the Week. Thank you. It's an honor. (laughs) Well, it really, it's not every day that one of our amazing colleagues writes a book, so it's definitely worth celebrating. Thank you. Of course. And we do want to take a minute to play a little bit of the talk that you gave yesterday. Um, You spoke on the main stage to a huge crowd of people about the book and a little bit about the Great Society and the not-so-great society. Uh, So let's take a listen. But what most people don't know is that the war on poverty, a third of it, Johnson said, would be fought in the classrooms of America. There, he said, your children's lives will be shaped. This was major federal intervention in three particular areas. The federal Head Start program launches, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act launches, and the Higher Education Act launches. So what have we seen as a result? You got a taste of this in Mary Claire's video, but the federal Head Start program, unfortunately, which had its goal was to, to quote Lady Bird Johnson, rescue our disadvantaged children, unfortunately it has utterly failed in that mission. We have spent $240 billion on Head Start since it was launched as a small summer program in 1965. And we have seen no impact on parents' parenting practices, their children's social-emotional well-being, their access to health care, nothing. So, Lindsay, we just spent about 20 minutes talking about education, but, you know, you're just such a fun and, and you know, cool colleague. So we just want to kind of take some time to talk about you. How did you end up at Heritage? Wow. So I've been at Heritage 11 and a half years, which is a long time, right? In D.C., that's like dog years. (laughs) So so I came by way, I uh, taught really, really briefly. I took over for, um, I did a long-term sub position. I took over for a woman who was teaching French in um, Central Virginia. I took over her French classes while she was on maternity leave. And so did that for a while. I was finishing up a master's at UVA. And honestly, I had always wanted to work at Heritage (laughs) from, like, the time I was in high school. And so I, at that point, I was wrapping up uh, teaching those classes. I think I was teaching 
a couple of sections of French 2 and French 4 and an AP French class. And then I saw a research assistant position open up at Heritage, and I jumped on it. And I remember just emailing nonstop, <laughs> like, <laughs> excuse me, I'm really interested in this position. And uh, so eventually was able to, to come work at Heritage and, and got that position and was um, really lucky to come in with just a, a great team that mentored me. And uh, eventually moved into a policy analyst role. And actually, it's apropos, we're at President's Club. We had some uh, really wonderful supporter, Will Skillman, uh, who liked our work very much that we were doing in education policy, particularly our focus on getting the federal government out and making space for school choice options to flourish. And so wanted to fund our work. And so I'm the Will Skillman Fellow in Education Policy. And probably one of the things I'm most proud of is that in 2017, we launched our Center for Education Policy at Heritage. So we now have a four-person education policy team, uh, which is small but mighty. <laughs> and we do everything from preschool through higher education, federal policy, state-level policy. So I'm really proud of all of the work that, that we've put out in our team there. So that, that's how I got here. <laughs> and some of those people on that small but mighty team helped you with the book, yes, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. So uh, all of our colleagues, so Mary Claire Amsalem, another problematic <laughs> woman uh, contributor, she has a great chapter on higher education policy uh, and the impact of the Johnson uh, policies on that in the book. Jonathan Butcher is the co-editor of the book with me. Jonathan is our senior policy analyst uh, and has been with Heritage for a few years now, but it's a return for him because he was at Heritage, sorry, Jonathan, probably 15 years ago. <laughs> um, so we have internal contributors from um, outside of the Center for Education Policy as well. Arthur Millick, who works in our Center for Principles and Politics, writes a provocative chapter on higher education. Uh, I think it's titled do universities undermine the public good? So uh, not provocative at all. And um, yeah, Rachel Gressler, who is, uh, works in our uh, economic space at Heritage, she has a really good chapter on uh, uh, early education, on how we can support uh, women, particularly uh, when they have young children and are navigating that space. Um, so yeah, lots of internal contributors, and then we have, I believe, 17 external authors that contributed as well, and we have the top thinkers in our sphere in education policy from Harvard, from Stanford, from some of the top universities across the country, so we're really, really proud of the book and think it's worth a read. Wow, it's always so interesting to see how things like that come together. Lindsay, last question for the podcast. What is one piece of advice that you'd have for a young woman? Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, I think it is to hone in on what you're good at and to stick with it uh, as long as possible to really cultivate expertise in a particular area and just make it your mission to become an expert in that area and the thing that it is that you love and that motivates you. That's such practical advice. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, and with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a big difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Kelsey Bowler, Lauren Evans, and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.